Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're going behind the curtain to talk to a publisher. We're getting a good idea of what it looks like, what it what it feels like, what, what the journey is like for a, mo- a more established publisher. A lot of times I have people on the show that are just getting started. This is their first, you know, first game, first Kickstarter campaign, that kind of thing. But today, I want to talk to Scott Gata from Renegade Games, who has been a publisher for a while, has you know nearly 100 games and expansions uh, at this point, maybe a little over 100 games and expansions at this point, games like Power Rangers and some really amazing games out on the market. He's been doing this for a while. So, Scott, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, really glad for you to be here. I, I love talking to people who've been doing anything for a long time, whether it's writing or making movies or making board games or teaching, you know, anything that they just have a wealth of experience just based on the amount of time they, they've spent doing it. And I feel like you're a guy that, that's been in the industry for, for a while uh, and you've been a publisher for a while. So I'm really excited just to kind of get your thoughts, your ideas on what it looks like. Uh, to be a publisher. I know a lot of people listening to this really want to start their own company. They want to run Kickstarters. They want to have their games on shelves or maybe want to sign games from other people and, and become a, a publisher one day. And so I'm really just pumped to kind of get the, the behind the scenes look at how you've done it, you know, things that maybe you do differently, all that kind of stuff. But before we get into those details, who are you? How'd you get into gaming in general? Well, so I'm um, Scott Gata. Um, you know, I probably got into gaming pretty similarly to most people. I, I started playing games in school, playing Dungeons and Dragons, um, and then eventually discovered card games in the 90s when Magic the Gathering came out and Star Wars CCG. Um, that was a big game for me. And eventually I decided to open up a store. So I started off owning a game store that... Um, I opened, I had a regular kind of like day job and I wasn't very happy there. And the, um, the owner of the company that I was working for probably wasn't treating me, um, as well as I would have liked. And they made me an offer that I didn't, wasn't happy with. And I quit my job with my wife pregnant with our first son and decided to, um, open up our store and do that full time. So that's how I got started. Just jumped right in. Yeah, no pressure there, right? <laughs> no. Yeah. So, so I, I, when when people always ask me um, for advice, like, should I just quit my job? I always say no. Um, burn the candle at both ends. I actually was doing stuff on the side, like I, you know, I kind of had, um, uh, I had a, a business selling posters and things like that. That was kind of like a hobby type business. So I, I, I did kind of ease into it. It sounds more dramatic. Um, but yeah, it was a big leap and uh, opened up a game store. And this was during, you know, the CCG boom, um, Star Wars and Magic, and then Pokemon came along. And eventually that led me to Decipher, who was the makers of the Star Wars collectible card game. And I started to contract for them. And I did contract work for them for a few years um, in the marketing and sales area and organized play. And then eventually they had offered me a job and I wound up selling my store, relocating to Norfolk, Virginia, working for Decipher, and eventually wound up running the game studio there. 
Very cool. Now, the game store, was that in California? Where did where did that start? No, that store was, uh, it, it actually still is, exists today. Uh, it's in Parker, Colorado. It's called Collector Mania. And I started that store, and then I sold it to a guy who worked for me in the store for a while, kind of part-time through high school and college, and eventually graduated school, and he bought the store from me, this guy Tim McKnight. And then Tim wound up selling the store to these two brothers who originally played Pokemon in the store back in the 90s when I owned it, and they're the current owners today. Very cool. That's a really interesting story. All right. So you went from Colorado to Virginia and now you're working in the industry, helping, you know, marketing different things for the Star Wars game. Now, how in the world did that ultimately lead to you starting your own publishing company? Um, so I spent, I spent about four years at Decipher and um, primarily working on the Lord of the Rings. By, by the time I moved out there, Star Wars was gone. Um, Lord of the Rings was really the, the main game that the company was publishing at the time. Uh, that and the the RPGs for both the Lord of the Rings and Star Trek and then Star Trek CCG. So uh, eventually my travels took me to California. I was offered a job at Upper Deck and I was brought into Upper Deck in the in the entertainment department. Um, my very first task was the Marvel Versus game, um, which had been going for a few years and the game was really well liked by players, but wasn't reaching wasn't reaching the broader audience um, that you would expect from a Marvel license. So one of the first things um, I was told was to fix it. Um, <laughs> so that, that again, no pressure there, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, they, they had positioned this game as a hardcore competitive game, and it, and it was a great hardcore competitive game with this this really robust organized play tournament uh, you know, structure. But the problem was is that it was too robust of a game, too complicated for a Marvel fan. So if I was just a comic book fan, it, it wasn't it wasn't great. It wasn't a great experience for me. It was too much. And the way deck construction worked and the way that the meta of the game had progressed, it became, as a fan, I was punished for playing a thematic deck. So if I was a fan and I decided to build a Spider-Man deck that was based around Spider-Man and, and the Spider-Man family of characters, I would do terribly in events, absolutely horrible. Um, the, the decks that were really dominating were kind of best of decks that weren't very strong on theme always. So, so there was a bit of a disconnect there between the game, the way the game worked, which there was nothing wrong with the way the game worked, but the problem was it wasn't connecting with the broader audience, which is why you do a license. Like why, why do Marvel if you, if Marvel fans can't enjoy the Marvel thing that you're doing? So, so that was the, one of the first things I was given. And then eventually um, my role expanded into the entire um, entertainment product group, um, like World of Warcraft trading card game and things like that. Gotcha. Okay. And so at what point were you like, you know what, I want to do this myself. Did, were there any other stops along the way after Upper Deck or did you just go right into Renegade or, or tell me um, about that? No, so um, I had actually, I started another company before Renegade. So I left Upper Deck. Upper Deck was having some issues, uh, especially on the sports side. And um, the company was kind of going through some changes. And Blizzard Entertainment decided that they were not going to renew their World of Warcraft license with Upper Deck. And that was, um, that was a pretty big deal for us in the entertainment group because a lot of people worked on that product. And Yu-Gi-Oh! had already previously left the company and went back to Konami. So our, our group was really um, 
really feeling the heat because we were just losing brands that that were keeping people employed and, and that's you know what they were into so myself and three other partners started a company called cryptozoic entertainment and our very first product was the world of warcraft trading card game that blizzard set us up with and uh so we hit the ground running and uh you know just kind of grew from there though cryptozoic um was very focused on licenses which was a big part of my my background not really by design but just by happenstance that i'd happened to work at other companies where we did mostly licensed games so so that you know i did that for about three four years uh, about four and a half years and after about four and a half years i decided um i really wanted a break from doing licensed product it's it's really fun um i'm a huge star wars fan you know getting to work on things like star wars and lord of the rings and world of warcraft which you know i i still play world of warcraft to this day um those are awesome experiences but they're also limiting because you're only getting to play in someone else's sandbox and they kind of make the rules so i wanted to do something different and that's where renegade came from because i wanted to spend a few years focusing on games that were original that we could build from the ground up and potentially even create our own intellectual property and, and our own world so there you go very cool now what year did you guys start cryptozoic uh, so that was started in 2010, and then I left. Um, I left August of 2014, um, and I, I basically, you know, sold sold the ma majority of my share in the company um, back to my other partners, and then used that to launch Renegade. Very cool. And so early on, tell me about just starting out. Right, because mm -hmm. I know a lot of people they, they they're just starting out right now. They're thinking, okay, how do I do this? How do I create my own publishing company? Tell me about that process of just getting going. Were you by yourself at first, or did you have partners? And then we'll kind of go into you know the beginning stages of Renegade. Right. So no, I I was by myself. It was it was just me, and I drafted my wife, who um, has a background working in banks and doing loans and and things like that. So she she was a stay at home mom. Um, raising our kids and was kind of our kids were starting to get to that age where she's like, well, maybe it's time for me to start doing something else. Uh, so I said, well, I've got the perfect thing for you to do. You can take <laughs> care of, <laughs> you can take care of all the horrible stuff that I don't like doing um, for, for this new company that I'm going to start. So, so I drafted her into service and uh, she took care of, you know, our, our AR and AP um, and finance and, and kind of all that sort of stuff. And then I focused exclusively on product development, marketing and sales, but it was, it was just the two of us for, oh, the first year and a half. Very cool. Now what is AR and AP? Oh, uh, accounts receivable and accounts payable. So those are, those are two very important factors. If you're starting a company, your accounts receivable is who owes you money and your accounts payable is who do you owe money to? And, um, when your accounts payable is greater than your receivables, you should probably take note of that <laughs> and, and do, do something about it. You're, spend, you're spending too much money that you don't have. Yeah, absolutely. Now, looking back, you know, a few years ago when you were just getting started, is there anything you would do differently? Maybe any mistakes that you made that you would kind of go, all right, I, I probably should have done it the other way or anything like that? Um, I mean, maybe... Uh, hiring, hiring our first person, bringing in somebody uh, sooner would have been would have been easier on me, easier on Robin, um, and and probably 
allowed our growth to accelerate uh, even more quickly. Just I was trying to be very conservative and cautious, and 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 ultimately, and I've never wanted to hire somebody where I'm hiring them into a situation that might not pan out for them, especially, you know, I wouldn't want to hire somebody away from a, another job that they have or another opportunity. Um, and then six months, a year later, oh, sorry, you know, it didn't work out. So my, my theory has always been to um, get to the point where the company can already support that employee um, before hiring them, not in those kind of startup situations where a lot of startups bring in people and then hope for the best, right? And hmm. and and that's not necessarily the wrong strategy either, because if you have a good plan and and you execute on that plan, like you need people to to make that plan work. So it's it's a bit of a chicken and the egg situation. But in this case, um, you know, I probably stretched myself too thin because you know not just product development, working with designers, uh, evaluating games, handling all the manufacturing, all the sales, all the marketing. So, you know, and and we, in our first year, we only put out one game, but in our second year, we put out two or three. And that's, yeah. that's a lot of work for one person. Right. Now, what was the position of the first person you hired? Uh, so the first person that we hired was Sarah Erickson, and she was taking over uh, sales and marketing. So that allowed, that allowed me to, to get the day-to-day of those things off my plate and focus on product development and still manufacturing and working with designers and all that sort of stuff. And then also just the overall running of the business. Um, I think that's something that a lot of startups, they, they kind of fall into this trap of, I call it kind of heads down mode where they're, they've got their head down, right? They're, they're kind of nose to the grindstone sort of a thing, just trying to get the stuff done from day to day to day. But sometimes you need to take a step back from that and look at the organization as a whole or what, what you're trying to accomplish and, not just worry about what you're trying to do tomorrow, but where where are you trying to be in three months or you know three years? And if you don't do that, it's very easy to three years three years will pass and you're kind of still in the same spot. And you yeah, have, for sure, you know. So so freeing up some of that workload is also kind of freeing up mind share as well. Yeah, for sure. So many people, like you said, they they get so caught up in the six inches in front of their face that they forget about, you know, a mile down the road and they forget about the vision of the overall company. Where are we going? Where we want to be in 10 years versus 10 minutes? Uh, I read a quote recently. It said, the important stuff is rarely urgent and the urgent stuff is rarely important. But so often we get so focused on the urgent, what we got to do right now, as opposed to really sitting back and thinking about the really important things of, okay, what are we going to be doing 10 years from now? Like, how do we, how do we figure out a plan to get to where we want to go? And, and so it's so important to kind of think through that. Now, when you were doing all this stuff early on, were you also designing your own games or were you only trying to find other designers and, and sign them? No, I was, I wasn't doing any design, but, but a big part of what I, I will do is try to find a designer um, that has something that's, that really shows promise. And then how do we take it and, and kind of take it to that next, next level, right? Like the best games in the world uh, if they don't have good product development, like that's the one thing that you always have to keep in mind. Like we're we're not making art just for the sake of making the thing. We're actually trying to make something that will reach as many people as possible and make them happy. And and that's that's kind of like where the you know the philosophies of product development come in. 
Um, it could be the best thing in the world, but if nobody knows it exists, it doesn't have any marketing, it doesn't have any shelf presence, um, it, it doesn't stand out in the current market. So, you know, the marketplace is kind of like game meta. You know, if you're a, if you're a card game player, the meta of the environment is, is very relevant to the types of decks that you might be building. Well, that's true of product development. The types of products that we might try to develop or how we develop them is partially driven by the market conditions. Um, so, so kind of crafting something that, that can do well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can have the most fun game in the world, but like I said, nobody knows about it or if the art doesn't look good, so it's not appealing or you're not in on store shelves in different places, it's going to be very, very difficult to actually make a dent in the marketplace. And so what would be your advice to somebody that maybe is getting into publishing as far as how do you create a good product? What are the things they really need to be thinking about? You know, or do we just chase trends or, or like what's your advice as far as, you know, the actual product development? Yeah. So I, I would say that you don't necessarily want to chase trends, but you want to be aware of them. Um, is it, is it a trend that's being underserved and is there a need for more? Um, or is it a trend that's quickly being saturated and you're just going to get lost in the crowd? And, you know, it, it, it could be either one. Um, I, I would definitely say that you don't want to, you don't want to scrimp on art, um, especially in this day and age, you know, 15 years ago, you could get away with some pretty subpar art in the game world. Like, you know, no offense to a lot of the, 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 the Euro games that were imported into the U.S. that really kind of started the modern game revolution, but the art's not great, right? Like by today's standards, it doesn't hold up. So um, it's very competitive out there and it's, it's essentially like a, you know, a book cover. If you don't have good art, it's really easy for people just to move on to the next thing. You're not going to catch anybody's eye. Um, the other thing I would say is if you're looking at a game how can you market this game? What's the hook? What's going to get people interested in it? Um, is it like a million other games that are already out there? But we're always, when we're evaluating the game designs uh, to potentially publish, that's one of the questions we always ask internally is, is there a marketing hook? Is there some way to actually get this out in front of people and, and make them interested? Yeah, definitely. All right. So tell me about the first game. What, what was the first game that y'all put out that first year? And then let's kind of break down maybe some different things about it. Maybe some things you do differently, maybe in the marketing, maybe in product development, that kind of thing. Um, oh, well, so this one is actually a really good example. Uh, the very first game that, that we put out at Renegade was actually a game that I brought with me from Cryptozoic. So this game came out uh, one printing and sold out when we were at Cryptozoic and it was called Gravwell. So I had... I had discovered the game with our with the designer um, Corey Young, and I really liked the game. And it was actually our first, I believe it was our first game that was an unlicensed game that we we did over at CZE. And but the original packaging really broke our rules, like the rules that I was just talking about. The packaging was not very sexy. Um, it was just graphic design. It was a blue box with a grid on it. Um, and very abstract with a with kind of like a logo kind of gear looking thing in the middle of the box. Um, it was pretty plain. So um, as part of my departure from the company, that was something that I had negotiated that I wanted to take that game with me because I really liked it. And it didn't it didn't truly maybe fit in their catalog at the time either. So um, when I took it over and brought it back, uh, brought it over to Renegade, 
we totally changed the, the box and the graphic design. So we commissioned an artist where it's a ship kind of coming through the Gravwell, which is right this black hole that you're trying to escape from and other ships flying behind it and asteroids being dragged in and just totally change the look and feel of that game uh based on the box we didn't really change the game itself the game itself was very solid it won a mensa select award um but the packaging just didn't do it justice so right from the start uh, we had to start with something that would pop on the shelves Gotcha. Okay, so that was your first game. And then going into the next year, tell me about the process of going, okay, we have, it was an idea of, okay, we have to uh, publish this many games to be profitable or like, tell me how you kind of came to the decision. All right, we got to do X number of games a year and then kind of scale up. Walk me through that. Um, so there there wasn't a, a very strict um, X number of games that we have to publish. Um, I, I did have a model that was built on the number of games that we would we had had sold. So based on an average price of say about $30, $35 for a game, I think I, I usually used a $30 average. Um, how many games units would we have to sell in a year to be X type of a company, right? So at X number of units in a year, um, that would be enough to support Robin and I, and we could just be a, a two person operation and and be okay. Um, it X plus Y. Now we're growing. We have enough revenue to support another person, um, and also bringing in another person increases our bandwidth and allows us, you know, to potentially grow beyond that. So that's 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 the way the very basics of how I would build a, a business model from that. Um, so it wasn't necessarily that we have to publish so many titles. It was we had these kind of sales milestones based on numbers of average numbers of units that we would sell in a year. Gotcha. And going back to the marketing side of this stuff, what would be your advice for somebody just starting out their first game, brand new company, you know, just trying to get noticed, especially in today's market, what would be your best advice as far as trying to market and and trying to get the word out there about the company and the games? Um, So I would say if you don't, if you don't have any experience in marketing, um, read as much as you can, learn as much as you can about marketing. If you're really good at product development and um, and every all the then the business side of of running a game company or you're a designer yourself, uh, you're the first person that you probably need to bring in is somebody that does sales and marketing. And I kind of always lump those two things together because sales and marketing to me, a salesperson is 50% a marketing person and a marketing person is 50% of a salesperson. Um, especially in this day and age, the, the lines are so blurred. So I would say you really do need to learn as much as you can about marketing. You need to understand it. Um, and then the next thing is you need to not get caught in a, this kind of marketing feedback loop. Like there's an old PR rule about public relations. Don't believe your own PR. Um, as soon as you start thinking you're as great as you tell everybody you are, uh, you're, you're, you're probably in trouble. So, you know, of course you, you want people to know that your games are fun and they're awesome and that you should try them and check them out um, and that you've put a lot of work into them and everything else, but you should always try to uh, maintain a certain level of humility and know that there's always room to improve. Uh, as soon as, you know, you kind of, you start buying your own PR, uh, 
you get kind of caught in a feedback loop. I would I would also say this happened with all, I think a lot of first time Kickstarter creators that I've seen. Um, their marketing reach is very very limited pre campaign, but they're getting lots of affirmation from their family and friends and other designers and their design uh, circles and everything else. And it seems like everybody's really excited about their game. And then they they launch it and you know they get 52 backers. Um, or they bring it to a, a show and they try to get it into distribution and the distributors just don't even want to talk to them. So it, it, it is, you need to ex expand your horizons a bit and realize that you, it's easy to get caught in these little feedback loops and not really know um, that your, your sphere of influence is smaller than you might think it is. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Uh, one quick question, going back to kind of starting the business, if I remember right, Renegade oper operates out of San Diego. Has that always been the case? Uh, yeah. So I've, I've been in San Diego since the uh, 2006, and that's where we're headquartered. Um, though we do have people all over the country. So we have a lot of people that work remotely, like Sarah, our very first uh, person that came on board. She's in Bozeman, Montana, and um, she lives out there. And we have Leisha uh, Cummins, who manages all of our operations and manufacturing and logistics. She's in upstate New York now. Uh, she used to be in California, but she can work remotely. So she does it from there. But yeah, we have people everywhere. Very cool. And so what? tell me about starting a company in California, because I know that the taxes out there are a little uh, more interesting than taxes maybe in Texas or Florida or other places like that. Uh, I lived in California. I lived in Los Angeles for a few months. And so I, like I've been there. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. But it seems like it's very difficult to have a business there. So kind of help me understand why you would uh, have a business there. And maybe maybe are there some things that make it easier, especially for people on the outside looking in who only hear you know what the news tells them about California and taxes right. and all that stuff. Tell, uh, me, tell me more. Yeah. I mean, you know, honestly, it's, it's not that much different than almost any other state. Like, yeah, personally, there's a state income tax. Well, most states have a state income tax. Um, you know, Florida doesn't, but I don't really want to live in Florida. No offense, but <laughs> I, I, I did live in Florida. I grew, I grew up there during my teen years. So, you know, I've kind of been there, done that time to move on. But um, yeah, I mean, there's, I would say that there's some, there's some pretty strict uh, human resources um, policies and guidelines that have to be followed. But, you know, I, I mean, for the most part, I don't think it's anything that you shouldn't want to be doing as a company to begin with. Um, so, you know, and then other things as far as um, corporate taxes, there's a there's a corporate tax that we pay every year. It tops out at like $20,000 a year um, is the most that, you know, a company will pay for that tax. Um, so again, like if, if your company is teeny tiny, it's probably not going to be impacted by those things. And if your company gets big enough, that $20,000 isn't, isn't really that big of an issue either. Um, you know, real estate here is very expensive and we don't, we work mostly remotely. We do have a studio space that we use for product development, um, but it's in an inexpensive area. It's not a retail space or anything like that. So it doesn't need to be uh, in a high rent area. So for, for the most part, it's, you know, these are, these are minor nuances. I would say if you're going to start a small business like this, um, it's really not that big of a difference. Uh, what you're hearing generally, these are Fortune 500 companies that are looking to optimize their, their tax positions. Um, those are champagne problems that most of us don't have. 
So, you know, I wouldn't stress too much about it. Um, you know, start, start your business where you want to be, especially if, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, that's one of the, one of the benefits of it is to have some control, like, you know, especially something like game, game development, you can pretty much be anywhere in the world. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now you mentioned you have a lot of people working remotely. Tell me what that's like. How, how do you manage that? Like how, how does that whole, whole thing work? Um, well, so for us, it's worked really well, but I think that's because I've been able to kind of cherry pick people that I've worked with in the past. So they were known quantities. Um, we're not a great organization for entry level people, um, primarily because when we started up Renegade, right, I, I had to make sure that um, everybody that we brought on was extremely proficient in in what their role would be and wouldn't need a lot of handholding at all. So, you know, Sarah, I had worked with previously um, at another company. She had worked for me at Cryptozoic. And so again, she was a known quantity. I knew that she knew what she was doing. I could bring her on. She could hit the ground running. And and I didn't have to have to train her. Uh, Leisha, Leisha Cummins has 15 years of operations and game and card manufacturing experience. So again, she's just hits the ground running. Dan Bojanowski, I've worked with it. This is the third company that I've worked with him at. Um, I originally met him at Decipher and he was a brand manager there. He managed the Lord of the Rings TCG. He later went on to manage the World of Warcraft trading card game at Upper Deck. He left the industry for a little while and then was working at a, um, a distributor. So bringing him on was a no brainer. He knows how to manage big brands and and do his thing. So so for us, working remotely is pretty easy because I have kind of all these people that are extremely experienced. Um, if we were a different company and I was trying to hire people that were entry level, it would be a lot more difficult because they would entry level people are entry level for a reason. It's it's nothing wrong with that. You have to start somewhere, but they require a lot of coaching and mentoring. And that takes a lot of bandwidth and it's even more difficult to do if you're remote. So, so for our model, that was a big piece of, of its success is that we had to bring in people that were experienced. Gotcha. It makes a lot of sense. Now, as far as like keeping people on task and making sure deadlines get hit and things like that, do you have some kind of system or milestones or some kind of uh, software or something like that to kind of make sure things get done? Uh, we do. So that's a, that's a Alicia job. So we use Microsoft project and she's kind of a master at it and she creates schedules. We actually have product schedules with uh, deliverables for every task from when art is due, when game develop game development needs to be turned over rule book files, editing, everything. Um, and we have different, you know, every schedule might be a little different if there's plastic involved, if there's wood involved, um, so right down to every little detail, we have a schedule for every product release and Leisha manages that schedule for every release. Very cool. Yeah. All right, changing gears a little bit. Let's talk sure. about Kickstarter. Uh, recently you've run some pretty successful Kickstarters with the Power Ranger games and, and things like that. Was Kickstarter part of your business model from the beginning or something you just kind of eased into? Um, yeah, it wasn't there from the beginning. We didn't use Kickstarter until year three, um, almost the end of year three. And for us, Kickstarter was really um, about the marketing. 
So uh, our first one that we ran was for Overlight role-playing game. And the reason why we did it for Overlight was uh, kind of twofold. So first of all, it was our first role-playing game. So we wanted to do something where we could run a campaign, use it as a marketing platform, and kind of introduce Renegade to the role-playing world and, and hopefully reach those people and, and develop a, a direct relationship with role-players that would be interested in Overlight. And then the second one that we did was Power Rangers. And Power Rangers, we did for similar reasons. Power Rangers is, is this massively huge brand. It's been running for 26 years now. It's had a TV show on the air for 26 years straight. So it's a multi-generational audience that may or may not be into gaming. So we used Kickstarter, again, as a platform to create this kind of marketing event, reaching out to Power Rangers fan sites, uh, wherever we could find them. And we we essentially just had this big recruitment campaign and where you could pre-order product, right? So Kickstarter is perfect for that. And and it really invested that, that community into the game. Um, a lot of them weren't hardcore gamers. We ran during the campaign lots of how to plays and live streams and painting tutorials and just all sorts of things that uh, kind of created an audience for the game from a fan base that may or may not have been into gaming. So it, it was really successful for that. And now we have this really robust community of Power Rangers fans that we interact with daily. There's a Facebook group just for that game that has about 5,000 people in it. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And so it seems like your your business model now is, okay, some games are going to kickstart. Some games are just going to go direct to retail. Is that, is that, is that right? Yeah, that's exactly it. So the, the games that we put on Kickstarter, it's generally um, because we feel like it has the opportunity to reach a different audience that either we're not uh, fully immersed in or, um, or, or just might not be into gaming. So Kickstarter for us is always approached from a marketing standpoint first. Um, and really, my advice would be, even if you are a company that your model is to run Kickstarters because the funding is the most important thing, I would, I would still approach it from a marketing perspective first. And if you do a good job on the marketing side, the funding will take care of itself. Um, if you just come in trying to uh, squeeze as much dollars and cents out of the campaign as you possibly can, but if you ignore the marketing side of it, um, you, you, you might come up short. So my advice is always to kind of focus on the marketing and sales side of it, uh, just as much as you would on the financial side. And one kind of takes care of the other. Yeah. Gotcha. Now, what would be your best advice for marketing a Kickstarter? Like what are some things maybe that you've done that worked really well or didn't work hardly at all? That kind of thing. Uh, so certainly try to build as big of an audience for either your game or you as a brand or your company as you can before you run the campaign. Um, if you wait until the campaign launches to start building awareness of who you are and what's going on, um, you're probably gonna come up short. So try to build, build that ahead of time and then also try to sync up with something. So for Power Rangers, we actually scheduled the campaign to overlap with a convention called Power Morphicon. Power Morphicon is this giant Power Rangers convention that happens every other year in Anaheim, California, and it gets about 15,000 Power Rangers fans. Wow. So yeah, we had this big 20 by 20 booth. We had uh, prototypes of the games. We actually uh, did uh, resin printings of uh, a bunch of the miniatures, 
and we just had the booth staffed and we were demoing it nonstop for two days and getting people excited and educating them about the game. We did a live stream from there with the hyper RPG folks and their, their, uh, uh, their cast of a Power Rangers show that they were doing for an RPG actually played the game. And we just did all this promotion and really tried to reach all these new people. And at the exact same time, they could go online and get more information. And if they wanted to pledge and, and back the Kickstarter at the same time. So again, trying to sync up like those marketing opportunities, but pre-marketing would be my number one piece of advice. Try to build your audience as best you can before you even launch that campaign. Very cool. And so as far as your process now, how much time do you spend? Like if you're going to launch a new game, you know, sometime, let's say later this year, 2020, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a new IP, it's not based on, you know, Power Rangers or something like that, something that you're creating in-house. What would be the timeline or how do you determine the timeline as far as building that audience? Or is there a certain number? We want to build up to 5,000 people on our email list for this game or something like that. Like, do you have any kind of parameters for that? Yeah, I mean, I would say, so it's a little easier now because um as as a whole renegade has a presence already so it's a lot easier for us to take a new game that you've never heard of that that's that's original and introduce it because we have a built-in audience to start with so we're we're kind of past that point of having to build awareness and a and a base audience from scratch like we we've kind of achieved that and leveled up now to the point where we, we have this built-in audience. So now the question is, how do we interact with that audience? How do we reach those people that already know us and we already have some sort of connection to? And then also, how do we continue to grow that audience and make it bigger over time? Okay, cool. So that, that makes a lot of sense for where you are now. If you were, but give, give me some advice as a new publisher, you know, somebody just getting started, maybe this is the first game, second game, going to Kickstarter. What would be some parameters or, or some ideas that you would share with them? Um, so I would say get out there and try to build your brand. So if you're a designer and you're going to be a, uh, a self-published designer and, and kind of be a designer publisher model, um, get out there, meet people, demo your game. Uh, you, don't, you, know, don't, you don't have to buy a booth at the biggest conventions. You don't have to do that at all. What you need to do is just start in a regional setting. Uh, anything within a drive from where you are. There's there's game conventions everywhere now. And just start there. Build a base. Um, and I would say start a year before you want to launch. I mean, even more so than that if you, if, if you have the time, like 18 months. And just go around, demo your game, get to meet people, build up kind of a groundswell. Um, and then the next step from that might be to go break out of that, you know, like within a one-day drive and and build that audience. So you at least have something to start from, but uh, get online, interact with with your with your potential audience, with your fans, uh, get them excited, and just be genuine. Uh, I know it's hard for some people. Like right? a lot of people are introverts and they don't want to get out there and and talk to people. But you know, they're just gamers. So go out there and talk to your friends. That they're they're just like you. Yeah, for sure. Some of the best advice I ever got was to always remember that one is greater than zero. And so if you're going to these conventions and you only find one person that's going to back your game down the road or get on your email or something like that, well, that's that's a whole lot more than nothing. <laughs> it's infinitely greater than nothing. And so uh, to always kind of keep that mentality, uh, one's greater than zero and, and just put in yeah. the time, put in the effort, put in the work. Now, yeah. for somebody just starting out, would you at this point suggest 
them not go to Kickstarter? Is there any reason not to at this point? Or is Kickstarter just kind of a foregone conclusion if you're going to start a company nowadays? I wouldn't say that it's the only way to go, but if you're just if you're just starting up, I would say that there's almost no reason not to, uh, unless you're just not prepared, right? Like you might you might throw it up there and it just flops. And that just means that you didn't build your audience. So I don't see really any downside. And it's it's really difficult to get into distribution at this point if you're an unknown, if you're just publishing your first game and it really doesn't have a built-in audience. Uh, distribution's probably going to turn you away. Even the consolidators who consolidate games with multiple, like lots and lots of small publishers, and then they sell it into distribution, um, they probably will even turn you away. So you need to build that audience first, right? Uh, develop, build the audience, become a hit, or at least show that there's there's some traction, and then you'll have a chance to ex- expand that. Yeah, definitely. Now, how in the world do I get in to distribution as a new company? Like, what was your process? And maybe you kind of had some some networking things because you'd already been part of other companies, things like that. But like, how how does that process even work? Why why would distributors talk to me? Like, at what point do they go, oh, okay, let's talk to this person? Yeah. So for me, I have to admit, it, I, I had a head start because I had been around for a decade or more before that. Um, and I just knew all the distributors that I would want to work with and just went to them and said, Hey, I'm starting a new company. You guys, you know, you'll stock my games. And they said, yeah, sure. So, so my, my situation isn't typical, especially now, um, even five years later, it's, it's even more difficult than it was five or 10, certainly 10 years ago. Um, they really don't want your game unless there's a built-in audience that's there's demand for it, right? There's, there's two types of products in the world. There's push and pull. Um, a lot of times I see game companies getting upset that, that the, the, the distributors aren't selling their games well enough. And you know what? The distributors can only do so much. I always view distribution as a, as a logistics partner, um, not really as a sales partner. I mean, they are partially a sales par- partner, but that's not their primary. Their primary, uh, primary thing that they're bringing to us is, distrib- is the distribution part, the logistics part. The sales part is kind of my job and my job is the marketing job. And I want to create demand. Demand is pull. And if you come in with a pull product that everybody's clamoring for, or there's lots of buzz and everybody said, wow, that was really great. The Kickstarter went well. Um, now game stores want to stock that, that game. The distributor is going to be much more interested, but if they've never heard of the game, that means their customers have never heard of the game. So why would they want it? Yeah, that makes sense. So if I run a Kickstarter and I only have, you know, a few hundred backers, then there's no reason for a distributor to think, oh, okay, we need to get this game because everybody wants it. But if I have, you know, 5,000 backers, 10,000 backers, then it's more of an opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're just showing that there was there was good interest in the game. And you know what? It's okay to to go the other route. Not every game needs to go into distribution and needs to go into game stores. There's plenty of people out there that have been very, very successful with exclusively a direct-to-consumer model. Um, I I will say you will eventually, if you have a successful game and it's doing really well, like thousands of units direct-to-consumer, that's great. You will, in time, hit a wall. Um, At some point, we all need help increasing our, our reach. So, you know, whether it's distributors or 
you know, licenses are a good way to increase your reach and expose you to your company and your brands to new audiences. Um, so there, there's trade-offs, but it can be a very viable model. Yeah, for sure. I guess it's always good to remember that there's a whole lot of people that walk into game stores every single day that are never going to go to your website. And so just to kind of keep that in mind as far as getting the games, you know, in retail on game store shelves. Yeah, I mean, game stores, I mean, at the end of the day, game stores create new gamers and they create new customers. So yeah. I, ideally, if you can get into a game store, um, it's going to be nothing but good for you. Yeah, for sure. All right. Now, I know a lot of people in the industry at this point, a lot of friends are publishers and, and things like that. Been doing it for a long time. Some of them, you know, some have five, six, seven games that they've published. But at the same time, they're still one man or one woman shops. And it seems like Renegade was really able to scale in a way that those other companies haven't. And so tell me about how you were able to scale. Why you scale? Like, did you get to a point you're like, okay, do we want to scale up or do we want to kind of stay where we are size wise? Like, tell me about the scaling of your company. Um, sure. So, I mean, it, it does kind of come back to those number of games sold um, metrics. And we were pretty successful launching games, selling through pretty decent sized print runs of five or 10,000 games, and then going back to, to reprint. And I do think it all kind of comes down to our marketing. Um, it's, it's not necessarily that every one of our games is, is better than every other game out there. Certainly not. But I do think that if I have a game that's equally as good as somebody else's game, our game might have a slight edge because we're really good at getting it out there and marketing the game and developing the game before it even hits the shelf as well. So I do that. That's what really drove our scale um, increasing pretty rapidly is our sales. I mean, our sales just we every year in the first couple of years, our sales doubled to triple um, the first you know, three or four years. And we've had growth every, every year since we started. So we've never had a, a year so far that we've, we've been down. We've always had some growth and, and gross sales aren't really the key metric. You need to have profit. Uh, it's really net sales that you need to be looking at. There's lots of people out there that will kind of spout big numbers. Um, but if you're not, if you're not, actually don't have any profit, you're not going to have any growth and you can't, you can't support your employees in the long run. So um, you need to be, you need to be cognizant of that as well. So yeah, we, we scaled. The other reason why we kind of scaled up is, I mean, in all honesty, I like to do new things. Um, we got into role-playing games, even though one of the first things I told Sarah when I hired her was that I personally love role-playing games, but they take a lot of work. So we shouldn't, make any role-playing games and part of her job was to keep me from making a role-playing game <laughs> and <laughs> so and that you know that didn't work out too well for her so uh you know now we we make a fair amount of role-playing games and so that that is part of the reason is, that we've scaled up is we want to make new things we want to have fun um we've had people within the company sarah is a perfect example where her job is sales and marketing and she played um, an Alex Cavern game, a prototype at an Unpub and really loved it. And I asked her if she wanted to produce the game and actually be the producer for it, kind of like what Dan does. Um, but at that time, Dan wasn't on board. I was doing all that. And she said, yeah. So she got to try that and she got to actually do all the direction on the game and the product development and everything. So um, that's part of the reason why we've scaled up is just to do new things that we find interesting and that can reach new audiences, um, or we just think are fun. 
Yeah, very cool. Now, looking back at the years you've been able to double and triple revenues and things like that, are there any things, uh, any, is there anything in particular you can like attribute to that? Was it just kind of being on the front end of a trend, you know, almost maybe a little bit of blind luck here and there? Was it the marketing, some different marketing things you're doing, maybe some different things you do that other companies don't do? Anything that you can look at and go, ah, okay, here's our secret sauce, that kind of thing? Um, yeah, so I, I do think we kind of came in in the middle of of this trend. I honestly wish we would have, um, that I would have started Renegade five years sooner. Um, so uh, we did kind of, we were a little late to the party as far as kind of this board game boom. But again, I keep kind of going back to the marketing. Really, it's just being consistent, um, working towards reaching new people, uh, engaging with those people, following up with them. Uh, that's that's really, I think, is is kind of our secret sauce, is that we invest a lot of time and effort into, you know, what broadly we'll kind of refer to as marketing, but we really kind of talk about it as engagement and community building, driving awareness and creating that pull. Like we want to create demand for our for our stuff. Um, we don't really ever go to distribution and say, why aren't you selling more of my games? It's not really their job. Their job is to fulfill my demand that I create. So I would say that's kind of our secret sauce. I, I do think a lot of um, new companies fall into this trap that they think the goal is getting their game into distribution or the goal is getting their game on Kickstarter and then Kickstarter is going to take care of it for them. And it, it might work, but it's probably not going to be as good as it could have been if you had better marketing and sales and building a community. So I would say that's probably our secret sauce is, um, is building that community and building that pull. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Let's uh, switch gears just a little bit. Let me ask you about something. I know a lot of people listening to this, this episode are curious about, tell me about your submission process and how you identify new games that you want to sign your development process, all that kind of thing, as far as the, you know, new designer or not necessarily new designers, but uh, designers submitting new games to you. Um, so right now it's, it's been pretty tight just because we we've got pretty full schedules for the next year and a half. Um, but a lot of times, so we'll travel, we'll go to the unpubs, like uh, go to Unpub in Baltimore. Um, Dan lives in Atlanta, so he goes to the Protospiel in Atlanta. I've gone up to the Protospiel up in San Jose. Um, we'll go to designer speed datings. Those types of things are great where we kind of just, we'll go and we'll scout around and just play lots of games. Um, you know, finding the next game that you want to make is a, is a bit of a needle in a haystack. Um, I've spent Gen Cons before where I'll just put out an open call and say, here's my schedule. Here's an online uh, scheduling tool. You can go in and schedule a 30 minute pitch for me. And I've done that for three days straight at Gen Con, starting at 10 a.m. and ending at 6 p.m. and gone through it and not signed the game. And it's not because the games were bad. It's just we didn't find the game that we wanted. So we've also kind of shifted gears and after the last you know five plus years working with a lot of designers we'll kind of reverse pitch to designers now that we've worked with previously and say hey i have an idea i would like a game that does this i'm looking for a solo only game with a narrative and that's kind of where the solo hero series came from um, you know i'm looking for a trick-taking game i'm looking for something like this and we'll actually go to designers and ask them to see what they can come up with based on, you know, whether or not we think they're a 
the right fit or not for that. And then other times we do do the kind of broad, hey, we're looking for solo games. I've done that recently. We have uh, Warp's Edge, which is the second game in the Solo Hero series coming out. And we want to be, we want to have usually at least one, if not two other games in that line kind of in the pipe, because it takes about a year or more to develop them. So, um, so it really is kind of hit or miss. Um, we do travel a lot. We do, we go to lots of events. What we are not doing anymore is accepting blind submissions through our website. Um, we used to do that. And honestly, I, it just, I couldn't manage it. It was just way too much. There were weeks where we would have one to 200 submissions in a week. And, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's on one hand, it's great, but on the other hand, there is no way I could possibly go through all of them, let alone respond to every single one of them just to even say, Hey, I got it. Let alone get back to them and say, Hey, I read it. Sorry, this isn't for me. Or, Hey, I read it. You know, um, this might, might be something. Could you send me more information? It was, it was just too overwhelming. So, so we kind of took that down and um, shut it off and even have something on our website just saying, you know, we're not, we're not accepting unsolicited solicitations at this time um, or submissions at this time. And we still get them. People email customer service and, and just send them, which is fine, I guess. But I, I'm going to tell you right now, if you send them that way, we're not looking at them because it's, it, it's just kind of clogging up the customer service inbox. Um, yeah, it's tough. I'd say the best way to pitch us a game is catch us at a convention. We do take meetings at conventions. Um, uh, you know, we don't do three days dedicated and every hour of the day doing it anymore, but we do take meetings and pitch meetings at conventions. So uh, in-person, unpubs, protospiels, those are the best. Gotcha. Now, what makes a renegade game a renegade game? Uh, well, so, you know, it could be any any type of game. Uh, family games, you know, what people, some people will call gateway games are definitely kind of our bread and butter. Um, but heavier Euro games, role-playing games, we've done all of that. So I would say it has to be something that we find fun. It does something different or it has a unique place in the market. So the Solo Hero series is a really good example. There's not a lot of solo-only games out there. There's games that have solo modes designed for them that are very good, but there's not a lot of, this is just a solo game. So we, we saw a solo game from Kane Klinko. He had designed it just to be solo, and we liked it, and we kind of liked the narrative uh, aspect that it could, it could support. So we said, let's turn this into a series. We, we see a need. Um, and then we did that one, which was Proving Grounds, and then the next one was Warp's Edge, and, you know, the next one. So we're right now internally loosely committed to putting out one game a year in that line. Um, so, yeah, it needs to bring something new to the table. What that new thing is could be a lot of different things. It could be the type of game. It could be the mechanics. Um, it could be the theme. There's been people that brought us themes that we thought were really, really cool, um, and Maybe the game needed more work, but we thought the theme was really unique and what the game was doing to communicate that theme was really cool. So it was worth taking, putting in that effort, extra effort and, and developing it more. Gotcha. All right. So walk me through your development process. A designer comes in, has a meeting, you love the game, you sign it. Now what? Tell me about the process of actually getting it onto people's tables, you know, a year and a half, two years later. Um, so it starts off, we'll, we'll 
we'll identify how much more work does the game have. There are very few games that come to us that are 100% done as far as the game design piece. Um, generally, I would say they're in the 70 to 80% range on average, sometimes 90, 95, but in general, about 70, 80%. And so we'll take it, we'll work with the designer. Um, it depends on the designer. Some designers are running lots more uh, uh, play test sessions and kind of doing a lot, of, very hands-on with the development. Other designers are not. It really is just a matter of personal preference. Um, but at some point in the process, we will take it and play it internally. We will also, we have a network of outside play testers. And depending on the, sc the scope of the game, um, we can share it with more people. A card game is very simple. We could have 300 people playing the game. A, a heavy Euro game is going to be smaller, obviously, because it's just harder to, to say, do a print and play or something like that. Um, but that process of development can be anywhere from 60 days to 12 months, depending on the game. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have some games that are massive in scope or are just challenges in other ways. We have a game right now that we're working on with Nikki Valens that is a heavy narrative-based game. The game design is one piece of it, but then all the writing that needs to be done for that game just for the narrative piece is a whole other piece. The writing alone is eight to 10 months worth of work. So, so that's that game is a 18 month development project, probably most likely. Um, so, but let's say that we go through a normal gateway level game. It goes through about 90 to 120 days of game development. Uh, we get the mechanics. They're they're humming. They're doing exactly what we want them to do. Um, and at the same time that that's happening, we're also talking about theme, art aesthetic where it's going to fit in the market, how we want to position it, price point. Um, during that development process, we are putting together an initial um, design document that outlines all the components and kind of starts to craft what this will look like on a shelf. And we are starting to work with our factories. And in a lot of cases, we've, we've made so many games, we can come up with pricing internally pretty easily. That's almost dead on. Um, but we want to start to see like, okay, what is this going to look like? If it's going to have 300 cubes in it and 82 unique meeples, but we want it to price be priced at 30 bucks, that's probably not going to happen. So that's, it's really important to be going through those exercises while the product development is happening in the game development, um, because there might be some back and forth that has to happen where we say, listen, this is only a $30 game. We can't have all these components in this game. We need to see if we can come up with other solutions that reduce the components in a different way, but still allow the game to do what it needs to do. Um, so there's that kind of balancing act between what's in the box and what the price point should be for this weight or game or game experience. So that all happens during that part. Then the next step is art and graphic design. So we're, while development is happening, we're usually scouting artists and trying to get a feel for who would be a good match for this game's theme and what we want and starting to write art descriptions and all of that sort of stuff. And contacting artists and seeing where we could potentially fit on their schedule. 
and hopefully contracting an artist that we really like that also fits our schedule so we don't have to push the game. There's been times where the perfect artist that we want for a game isn't available and we'll delay the game because we really want that artist. So that all happens um, once the art is done and the graphic design is done and the game is done, uh, game design is done. The next step is then it goes to editing. We usually do another final play test of graphic design to make sure like the user interface is good. And um, we try to pay as best attention as we can to things like color blindness, though that's kind of throughout the whole entire process with how we're going to represent things on the on the uh, on the table. Um, so while all of that's happening, we're also gearing up towards manufacturing. Where does it fit in the manufacturing schedule? Where does it fit in the sales schedule? Um, so there's a lot of moving pieces that all kind of happen in parallel to one another to ultimately get that on your table. So I would say the average is about 12 months and sometimes as much as 24. Yeah, it's just so there are just so many steps along the road in the process. And then you can, you know, look at all that stuff. And then you got, you know, a month of it just sitting on a boat, you know, in transit from China or wherever you're uh, manufacturing. Like there's just so many things that take a long long time yeah. in getting a game, you know, actually on a table somewhere. Now, if give me a little bit of advice as a designer that is, that's going to work with you and your company, or maybe just work with companies in general, what, what's your advice during that development process, you know, kind of that designer publisher relationship, what are some best practices? Um, so the thing that we always tell designers is that we, we work very collaboratively. So we use for, uh, we use a tool called Slack and we'll start a channel for their game. And the designer will be in there and the graphic designer will be in there and the art director and pretty much the whole team that's going to touch this thing. And all that communication kind of goes in there because we want to be very transparent. And we always tell designers, uh, you're welcome to participate in the process as much or as little as you want. I would say 95% of designers participate in it heavily. And there are some designers that are like, no, it's good. Like you guys, you know, take it across the finish line and just keep me in the loop. Um, but I would, my advice to them would be, is to be open to working collaboratively. Um, please, I know that this is your baby, but it's not a baby. <laughs> okay. It's, it's, it's not a real baby. Um, it's something that needs to evolve and grow and become the best version of itself that it could possibly be. So, you know, having some flexibility is really important. There, there are times where, um, you know, I've sat in a pitch meeting and I've, I've liked the game and the designers had it themed in a certain way. And I go, oh, well, I'm not really a fan of, you know, this pirate theme. I don't really think I, I need to put out a pirate game. And they'll go, oh, no, it has to be this. And I'll go, oh, OK, no problem. And <laughs> moving that, on, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the end of that. Like, OK, no, I'm not going to fight you. I mean, it's, it's all right. Like if it has to be that thing, that's OK. But just be aware that you know, we might just have to walk away from your thing. Like, um, there are, I'm the best game in the world with the wrong theme or packaging, right? Like the game design is one piece of an overall puzzle. And if the overall puzzle is missing pieces, you know, we, we can't, we can't sell it as well as we would a complete puzzle. So, um, yeah, I would say that collaboration and flexibility is key. Like you'll get so much out of it and you'll grow as a, as a creator. Um, and don't discount the other people um, that 
are creative in different ways. So Leisha, who is a manufacturing expert, she's very creative in solving problems that you might not have a, a solution to solve. When we say that there's too much stuff in the box for this $30 game, uh, Leisha is going to be the one to help uh, with a creative solution that will allow us to make your game and not charge 60 bucks for it. So, so there's, there's a lot of talent and a lot of skill that kind of comes into the mix. And the more you can absorb of that and take advantage of it, the better off you're going to be. Yeah, for sure. All right. Looking towards the future, right? We, we were talking just a little while ago about how things have changed dramatically in the last 10 years and last five years, they're going to keep changing, you know, as, as things keep ebbing and flowing in the industry, as, as more companies come on the scene, as more games are being released and as more new gamers are, are coming into the, the hobby as well. So looking towards the future, what, what's your advice to somebody who maybe is, is starting a company uh, right now or been running one for a little bit or, or that kind of thing as we, as we move into 2020, 2021 and on, what, what would you tell people? Um, well, I would say, you know, if you, if you want to start a game company that you should, you should go for it. Um, there's it's now is probably the easiest time there has ever been to make a game. It's also probably the most difficult time there's, there's ever been to draw attention to your game. It's extremely competitive out there, but don't, don't let that stop you. Just know what you're getting into. Um, the market is booming. There's new gamers coming into the space all the time. Uh, there's great, there's great ways for you to make a game. Um, you know, companies like Panda, who has you know English-speaking reps in the U.S. and Canada, that can help you make a game, even though you yourself don't have to have any expertise in actually doing the manufacturing piece of it. Well, they can do that for you. I mean, it might cost you a little bit more for your game, but that's a worthwhile expense because. If you don't know what you're doing, you're going to make mistakes that are going to cost you way more. So it's the best time to get into it. Just know that you are getting into something that is extremely competitive. It's very difficult right now to get attention. So my other piece of advice would be um, if you can do this in a way where you can do it on the side to start and do it part time to start. This is me always like getting back to my whole thing like do as I say, not as I do. Don't don't necessarily quit your job and start a company uh, when your wife is seven months pregnant with your first child. Like I'm not going to ever tell anybody to do that, even though I did it. Um, I would say, you know, try to try to be conservative. Try to have a, a, a good baseline. Um, do it on the side, and then put as you know, burn the candle at both ends, and and see if you can get it off the ground, and then make the leap. Definitely. Well, Scott, this has been great, man. Do you have any closing thoughts, either for designers or people wanting to get into publishing, any kind of thing to kind of close things out? I mean, just like I said, follow all your dream. Do it if you want to do it. Um, it's it's crowded out there. If you're a designer trying to pitch your games, uh, just keep plugging away at it. Keep iterating. Um, you know, work on more than one design. Don't don't just fall in love with the same thing and and kind of harp on it for years and years. Um, it's like it's like writing. Read lots of books and write lots of stuff. Um, get out there. And if you see any of us at conventions, you know, stop by, say hi. Uh, we might not always be able to take your pitch meeting, but we're, we're always happy to talk to you. Very cool. Well, I know you got a lot coming out, a lot, a lot of things on the horizon here in 2020. Anything you want to tell people about or, or anything you're really excited about and you can't wait to get on people's table? 
so we have we have a bunch of stuff. Um, so Warp's Edge is the next game coming in the Solo Hero series. That's a Scott Alms game that I think is really special. It's very, very cool. Um, we have that coming up. We have Scott Pilgrim Miniatures the World, which is a miniatures game that's our first time going into pre-painted miniatures. Um, that one's super fun. And lots of new Power Rangers stuff. We have um, a new game called Succulent coming out. It's about succulents. It's an Alex Caburn thinky game. Um, really just all sorts of cool stuff. I would just say go to renegadegames.com and there's all sorts of cool things in the works coming up and check it out. Awesome. Well, Scott, really appreciate you coming on the show. Really appreciate your time. Good luck with all these awesome games coming out and everything else you got going on right now. Great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?